This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. Showing you the divide doesn't make me divisive. You're being so divisive talking about race. No, no, no. Race was constructed to be divisive. I'm just letting you know that I noticed the divisions. Welcome to Everyday Ubuntu. I'm Mungi. This week, my guest is the British actress, writer, and host of the Say Your Mind podcast, Kalechi Okafor. She was born in Nigeria, raised in London, and always describes herself as just a baby girl. Kalechi is a social commentator who delivers the truth candidly with humor and clear insight into the soul work we should all be doing. As someone who sometimes has trouble calling out injustice while simultaneously protecting her peace, Kalechi has taught me a thing or two. Our chat was a real one that touched on empowerment, shame, racism, and motherhood. She may not believe that she empowers others, but I think she does. Here's our conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. I am so excited to be speaking with you today. I'm glad to be here. It's exciting to, to talk up to talk up the things. Yeah, we're going to talk about everything. But first, I want to start with, you know, my mom says that our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a human. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, what would you say is missing from your extensive resume that people should know about you? Um, what's missing? I guess, like, I really like cooking. They should give me a cooking show. That's what they should do. A cooking <laughs> show mixed with just saying the wildest things. Um, I think that that would do really, really well. I love cooking. I love like experimenting, trying out different flavors, you know, different flavor profiles, things like that. That doesn't get showcased too much on my page because my kitchen is so tiny and I just don't feel like I have the right space to be able to kind of like take photos and things of the things that I make. But eventually, you know, something will, will come through. Okay, well, hopefully someone's listening to that and is about to like jump on that and reach out to you after the fact to get this show going. What could we what could we name it? I feel like it should be named either Spice Up Your Pum Pum or <laughs> just Season Your Life. That would season be probably the one that Yeah, that would be the one that gets cleared, you know, I like Season that. Your Life. Okay, season I like your that. food, season your life. Yeah. Let's do that. Let's do that. So, you know, <laughs> Obviously, I, I do an intro for my guests, but I do also think it's always more interesting to hear how people describe themselves. Mm. And so I wonder if you could give us a brief description of who you are. Yeah, I feel like it's always going to be the same description for me. Well, you know, life changes. But I always describe myself as um, just the baby girl. I think that that encapsulates the essence of who I am, I feel like I do so many different things, whether it's like running the pole dance studio that I have or like writing, acting, podcasting, social commentary, all of those things, um, as well as like being a, a mother. I do all of those things. I am, you know, in all of these spaces, but me, the essence of me is just the baby girl, just this being that's trying to just take the world in as I see it share my opinions where I want to, but ultimately just enjoy life. Just enjoy life and be cradled in the hands of the most high. I like that. And you mentioned the pole dancing studio. If I knew someone, myself, (laughs) that was going to be in London from July to September, how could they come to the pole dancing studio? Brilliant. They could uh, log on to kolechnikov.com. That's the um, studio uh, website, kolechnikov.com. And all the classes are already on there up until November. 
So, yeah, I mean, you know, like with the way that lockdowns have been happening, I'm really reluctant to put everything online for the entire year, which is what I used to, um, used to do. You'd have it on there for like a year and a half, but now I'm just doing like little blocks. But someone can log in, check out the classes that have availability because they get filled up so quickly. I Select bet they today. do. <laughs> Select a date, book themselves on, you know, and just come through. It's great. It's great seeing new faces all of the time. It's wonderful. Oh. Okay, well, I'll probably be doing that. <laughs> and, you, and you know, speaking of like the pole dancing, I know that people come at you about that and the fact that like you have your son when you're on the pole. And mm. I see it as a workout, so I'm like confused. And also like, why do you need to worry about people's children? Yes. Um, so, that, so it makes me want to ask like, what, what does empowerment mean to you? Mm. Yeah, I feel like empowerment is a self um, sustaining kind of force. It's a self-sustaining mechanism because people talk about empowering others. And I really don't think that I do that. I think that people are inspired by me to empower themselves. Um, and I think that that's, that gives people more agency, that gives people more autonomy. And yeah, it's really about stepping into who you are unapologetically. People are so scared and um, to do that. And I feel like a lot of people perform empowerment. They'll say all the right things. They'll do all the hashtag girl boss, all of that stuff, all the hashtag lean in till they fall over. All of that stuff. They're doing all of those things, but truly in their day-to-day -day lives, they're still disempowered because they can perform empowerment to the world. But in the day-to-day -day where these shifts need to actually take place, they're not really doing it. And eventually the facade, it starts to crack. So my focus really is on empowering myself, really standing in my truth, really showing up in the world as who I believe myself to be in the day to day. And I think that that transcends then into like the larger narrative or how I'm presented publicly. I love um, fitness. I love movement. I love pole dance. I just, I love running. These are things that I enjoy and I love my son. So why would my son not be a part of the things that I enjoy within reason? Obviously I'm a seasoned like uh, fitness professional. I have been since about 2012. So they're not actually concerned about the safety. They're concerned about the hypersexualization and the way that they consume the female body. That is what they're concerned about. And the way that pole dance is perceived and rightly so it's an, it's a celebration of sensuality and sexuality. They can't seem to fathom how you can be both sensual, sexual, all of that and be mother and and celebrate that sensuality in around your children but that's why you lot are trawling the internet now trying to police other people's bodies because you didn't see your mother be her whole self and you know what that's funny because I, I wanted to ask you about that and and i saw some of your commentary on motherhood and how you're doing it and i was wondering you know through the soul work that you sort of do do you have advice for people who want to be mothers or are mothers and are dealing with the people that put all these expectations on them. Mm. Or maybe we need advice for the people who put the expectations on mothers instead. Yeah, I mean, their, their advice is always very simple and it's SYM. So that's what they need to be going to do. Um, but <laughs> I feel like generally there are so many unhappy people in the world. And that is because of the systems, the white supremacist patriarchal systems that we exist uh, within and under so people are unhappy and the thing that they do with that is that they project that unhappiness and they try to have a 
a sense of control, a false sense of control. And so if you are eschewing any narrative that they've held on to dearly that's helped them to feel somewhat safe in the world because this is the way that things are done and you're changing that, obviously you're going to get some backlash. So mm-hmm. some um, people have their children later on in life. You know, some people choose not to become mothers and some people, you know, are happy to adopt or have a surrogate or do various things, go about motherhood their own way. That Some people are choosing to be mothers without necessarily wanting to co-parent with someone that they're romantically involved with. The, you know, the, these are all valid modes of having the family that you want, having the life that you want. Yeah. And to listen to other people is a real disrespect to your own divinity because what do they know about your God? Like, you know, what do they know? So, you know, you serve whatever you serve and whoever you serve. You don't know about my God. My God says I can run through and do what the hell I want. I don't need to answer to you. I'm not answering to any human being. Yeah. When people ask me why I don't want kids and tell me, like, I need to have them, I'm like, are you going to pay for them to go to school? (laughs) Because if not, sit down. Like, you don't need to be telling me I need to have kids. Thank you, though. I just find that so wild. Like, why would you want to have kids? Because I don't. Because why Why would you want to inextricably link your worth as um, a person that, you know, a birthing person to the fact that you've chosen to not use that function? I, I've got other things that I'm doing. There's other things that I'm birthing in my life. I don't need to mm-hmm. birth a human being to be valid as, you know, the person that I am. And I think people really, really struggle with that because to them, woman means servitude woman means reproduction um meanwhile you do all of that and like you say they're not going to support you when you've got to pay for nursery and pay for all of these fees and then the money's coming out of your nose like they they don't help with that but they want to tell you that you should have the child it's it's ridiculous then they're gone but Mm. you mentioned okay so you mentioned stepping into yourself and sort of your power and i know that last year you wrote an open letter to megan where you applauded her for choosing to live life on her own terms um, could you share more about that letter and like what it highlighted, the, the sort of themes of what was happening in the moment? Yeah, so I wrote that for Essence magazine. I wrote that open letter mm-hmm. for Essence magazine. I was approached um, about it because uh, Corey Murray, who um, is the director of entertainment, I think at Essence, she wanted a UK voice to talk about what Megan had experienced now that Megan had said that she'd be moving with Harry back to the US and not staying in the UK. And lots of people were scared to write it. Everybody wanted to kind of dance around it. Even in the UK papers, everyone's trying to dance around the very obvious reason that she's leaving is the nasty racism that um, Britain was built upon and thus America was built upon. Like Britain fashioned the racism that then America repackaged and went wild with. So it's just... it. I felt like I needed to, I needed to write that and say that now you know Britain's really ugly secret that you know we it's weird to me that people think that racism doesn't exist in the UK failing to understand that if you are the 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 source that that created a specific type of racism then you will have a way to kind of throw rocks and hide your hand so it looks like an American problem. And Brits, Brits, a lot of Brits do believe that. When we see things about police brutality, when we see anything that's extremely overtly racist, they'll go, oh yeah, at least we're not America. Yeah, because we're worse, because we're worse. That's, that's, that's what we need to know. For the proportion of black 
people who are in this country, the number of them that have died as a result of being killed by police when, when we say like, you know, everyday police that are on the beat, they don't usually have guns. There are police with guns in the UK. Yeah. But the ones that we know, um, that we see on the day-to-day tend to not have guns, but they have tasers, they have batons. So I'm telling you that they're extremely creative then. If they don't have guns, the, you know, the everyday ones that you're likely to bump into, and they're still managing to kill people they're with putting, the proportion like, of black people that are here. It. Right. They are they are excited when they are given that task. So we can only imagine what they'll then do if all of the police force were given guns. And I know that it's slightly different in Ireland. In Ireland, they're going wild with killing black people over there because they've got their armed police as well. So looking at uh, Megan's experience as a very, very, very light-skinned biracial woman who married into the highest echelons of um, British society, for her to still face the racism that somebody like you or I, um, you know, we would face, that's telling you something. That's telling you that Britain just couldn't hide it anymore. Mm -hmm. Just knowing that her mother was black, it's like she was being punished for her mother being a black woman. And they were willing to sacrifice Harry for that. You'd think that their darling prince would be off limits. Like, okay, you've got this person. While we hate all the other blacks and black adjacents, we'll let you off on this one. But no, no, they weren't going to have it. So I wrote the piece because I felt like it's important for Americans. It's important for the world to know that Britain is not a nice place. It's extremely hostile, and but it just does it in a way that um, could go um, unnoticed by the outside world looking in like yeah you I saw you did a video that I was like well damn you just like I don't know you have these words and you just like hit the mark where you were talking about sort of Britain and what was happening and you were you were talking about like what is casual racism like can I wear it to work on a Friday what like <laughs> y'all you, that's what you said like this this politeness and I was like damn yeah what like what does that mean yeah, that's that's what it is. That's what's so tough about it. So I know a lot of black American women who have moved to the UK. They moved to the UK because they wanted somewhere different to raise their children outside of the US. And um, what the common theme that they've all mentioned to me, and these are extremely successful women. So we're not even talking about women who are coming from America and coming straight into maybe a working class environment. They're coming into middle, you know, upper middle class. They're coming in there. And they're saying to me that the hardest thing for them to fathom is the psychological nature of the racism in the UK, because it's not the kind of, I guess, overt types of racism that you would pick up on um, in abundance in America. No, this one just kind of goes in to kind of mess up your psyche and really make you question your day to day. So you're broken from the inside out. And a lot of people don't clock that. So they kind of live their life and they're happy to kind of work with the master's tools and not try to do anything about dismantling anything. They just work with Mm -hmm. it. And I find it interesting that for so many years, I've been saying this, I've always been kind of like the loud black girl or the quote unquote angry black woman in the UK. And it's only when the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement happened last year and, you know, the murder of George Floyd, that suddenly people were turning to me and all of my videos are suddenly going viral 
because people are looking for a way to understand the world that they've now found themselves in, like they've opened their eyes to see where we're at. But prior to that, they'll be like, oh, Kelechi, she's always shouting about something. Oh, Kelechi, she's always saying, because somebody needs to say it because we're being flogged spiritually and mentally physically sometimes daily mm -hmm. and people aren't waking up to the fact that we should be doing something about this so the racism is extremely polite here where someone might give you a banana as um, a secret santa present you know at christmas time and then you're upset about that and they'll be like, i don't i don't understand why you're upset it was just it was honestly just a you know harmless joke i don't Susie, Kathy, do you know why she's upset? Oh, she's taking this too far, honestly. Yeah. And then they start crying and then you're the one that gets fired or you're the one that gets taken to disciplinary. Yeah. I did my master's in, in London and it was, it's, it is like quiet and insidious. So you, I kickbox mm. and I'm like, oh, I got to be like blocking. Like, I don't yeah, know yeah. why that made me feel uncomfortable, but I know there was something in that. And then later on, you're like, oh, that's why that made me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, it, but it like it's an afterthought and it takes you time. Yeah, and I mean, there's been so many ri riots, like there's been so many um, ethno-nationalist groups um, akin to the Klan that have um, really tormented the Black and Asian communities in Britain for many, many years, for decades. So even when we do look at it now and we talk about, you know, and I've said many times about the racism in Britain being insidious, but we look at like the Grenfell fire you know, people just died, you know, at the hands of the state, the negligence of the state. And we're just skating past it. You know, um, we think about the new crossfire and that, how that was more than likely started by white racists. Um, black people are having, you know, young black people are having a party in the house in New Cross and they burnt them inside the house. And I think only what one person managed to escape. Um, and they live with that memory. Notting Hill Carnival that people love so much. Why, would that, why was that started? Why was that started as a response to the the wild racism, the very brutal um, nature of the racists in the UK? So they are overt with it. I think that what's happening is now they're trying to rebrand it. And you see it come out when, you know, people like myself point out the racism of the UK and people get upset and they start telling you that you're a black monkey. But you've just proved my point. I said that Britain is racist and you said, oh, well, if you don't like it, go back to your country. Well, I would. What if do you, you mean, gave go me back? All... No, I'll go back, but give me all my things back. Give me all my things back, then I'll go. All the things that you have at the museum, all the things that Queen Lizzie has got, give me everything back. Cancel world debt. All of you leave Nigeria and then I'll, and then, and then we'll go from there. But until then, don't tell me about go back to my country. Well, okay, so you are the person that sort of, you know, is, is, is speaking out and holding people accountable. And I wonder if you have found a way to sort of hold people accountable while pre preserving your peace, you know? Like, have you found a balance? Do you have advice on how to like not let the microaggressions that happen in the UK go unchecked, but not, you know, lose yourself in the trauma that th is there? Yeah, definitely. I think that more people are stepping up now, aren't they? I think because some of them like the glitz and the glamour of it or the perceived glitz and glamour of it. So they want to step up and they love being on TV every other day, screaming with um, at a white person about racism and things like that. That's not my bag because I just know that I don't have the tolerance. I don't have the patience to sit arguing with somebody when I know that what I'm saying is a truth that mm -hmm. it needs to be expressed. We're just going to end up fighting. So the best thing I can do is to not do those kind of panel 
things or you know to go on the news and start arguing and debating with people so I always turn those things down for my sense of peace and my mental health so it's to the point now they don't even ask me especially since I know that whenever they invite quote-unquote white experts onto the show they usually get paid. What's a white expert? You know just a white male expert at anything they could be an expert of you know lobotomy, um, phlebotomy, anything they usually get paid right but when they're inviting black people on to talk about our experiences that we are experts of, they usually don't offer pay. So knowing that, whenever they reach out to me, I say, are you going to pay me? Oh, we just don't <laughs> usually pay for... Okay, bye. We don't have the bye. budget. Okay, well, come back bye. at me when you have the budget. Right. We don't have the budget, but you always have the budget when you get white men on as experts for the news. So I tend to kind of like stay away from doing news bits. The, the last news bit that I did... Well, actually, you know, I, I did one um, for, I think, the BBC. But prior to that, the last one was the Sky News one that went viral, you know, yes. about Meghan and Harry again. Um, you know, after the Oprah interview, that was, you know, that was a lot. Or before the Oprah interview, then after. Um, and CNN and those sorts of things. But I was very particular about the platforms that I agreed to go on because I'm not arguing right. with anybody. I'm going to say what I need to say and then I'm going to go. Um, and that's important. I think that that's very, very important to not put your humanity, to not put your reality um, on the table for discussion. Only, I feel like only we have to do that. And, and I just don't get why that we continue to entertain it. So that's how I protect my peace. And I just try to not say so much yeah. now. Like I said, there are more people who want to do it now. So they're ju constantly jumping on the news. It means that I can step back. And if someone were to go on my Instagram stories, I'm probably running or I'm probably at the gym, just, you know, doing my things or just posting about, you know, other random things. But if something does catch my eye, I will post it on Instagram stories. But I don't rush to be the mouthpiece for anything really anymore at the moment because... I know that yeah. everybody else has got it. They'll be fine. And if something does need explaining, I'll jump in. But actually, we have to consider how, as black women, we link our worth to our productivity. I don't need to be speaking on every single platform about everything that's happening. I've got one podcast. If you care so much about my opinions, I'll probably be sharing it on the podcast. And I think that that's what I had to really come to terms with, that if the people need me, they will find me. Yeah. And you don't need to be having the conversation with five different people. If you've already yes. said it once, it's the same thing that you've yeah. said. Do you ever wonder what goes on behind the scenes of your favorite homegrown films and TV shows? Well, it's time to pop some popcorn, go behind the camera and meet the people who are making it happen. I'm Mariska Fernandez, host of the Maple Popcorn Podcast. In this new series, you will discover exclusive interviews with Canadian icons and hear them talk about Canadian flicks and even break the fifth wall to share set anecdotes. This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female and powered by Telefilm Canada. Subscribe now on the podcast app of your choice and don't miss an episode. Stay in the know by visiting telefilm.ca slash see it all. And when we were talking about the article, you sort of mentioned that, you know, some people were afraid to write it. And that made me wonder, like, do you feel that there's a clash between being successful in this world that we live in, like the way that it's set up and the systems are, while also working towards anti-black racism? Like, are there, are there moments where you're ever afraid to comment on something? No. <laughs> 
I didn't think Honestly. so. <laughs> I will have to be careful about how I go around commenting on it and whether I do actually need to be the one that's um, making the comments. But ultimately, no. And I think that where I'm blessed is that I've put in that work and God has helped me immensely where I work for myself. Like I have my pole dance studio and, you know, all the other bits that I do. So I don't, and I'm, you know, I usually say it online, I don't have an earthly boss. There's nobody that I'm scared of that's going to fire me if I say something. Because last, last, <clears throat> you don't like what I said on such and such place, you decide not to come to my studio again. That's your business. The classes are fully booked. Somebody else will take your space. So it, I, you just, ha I'm blessed to have that sort of cushion and I know that a lot of people don't, a lot of people are, whether they're self-employed or not, they are still working or contracted to people, right? And so they don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to stop where their next booking is going to come from. So they're very careful about the things that they say. I just feel like with my spiritual practice, I've gotten to the extent where I know that I was not put here to suffer. So if I know that I'm speaking a truth that I think will emancipate and liberate people who look like me and who have had my experiences, mm -hmm. I'm not going to suffer for that. And the people who don't want to work with me for saying the most basic things about, you know, I don't know, critical race theory, they suddenly don't want to work with me, then I was never meant to work with them in the first place. So I just rest in that knowledge, but I know bills need to be paid. I know people need to kind of do the work that they do. So they don't, they can't say certain things, but I do expect of those people to at least be supportive of what I'm doing, whether that's, you know, you're promoting a podcast or you're coming to the studio or you share my articles in WhatsApp groups with your friends, just yeah. make sure that you are amplifying it and getting me those numbers. Absolutely. And it's sort of once you know your purpose and you found it, it makes discerning things just so simple. Like yes. I, if I get an email, I know that's a no because yeah. that's a no immediately. Like the, the, you and I do not connect on this level. So we don't even need to, you know, try and make a relationship work, even if you're offering me a certain sum. Mm, yeah. And that is the real test, isn't it? And those tests come often. Before, like a few times in the, I'd say past, recent past, you fall for it because you're just like, oh, but it's a good amount of money and I need to pay for this and I need to pay for that. So let me just do it. Ah, the drama, mm. the drama that you have there, because now any little thing that they're asking you to do, the back of your mind, you're resentful you're because you're like, I don't about, bloody yeah. want to do this. Yeah, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. And so they could be making perfectly valid um, requirements or whatever. And you're just like, no, no, no. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And you're arguing back and forth all because you should have just said no when it came your way. And so now I'm just very careful about that. Like, it doesn't yeah. matter how much it is. If I know that it's going to um, tarnish my image um, or make me deviate off my path, then I'm not doing it. This is the whole reason why when people call me an influencer, it kind of pisses me off because I don't feel like I'm an influencer. I'm, I guess I'm influential but I'm not an influencer. I feel like that's a whole job description of what, you know, people do. Um, Cause I try to not do any like paid ads or things like that on my page. Well, I try to limit them, especially this year, because I found that through working with brands, mm -hmm. they'll come to you and they'll be like, oh, we just love your content so much. But I need you to uh, do we, this, this and this. But yeah, we just want you to do it this way. We love your voice. So say it exactly as you would usually say it, except don't say it exactly as you would usually say it. And 
a, you know, in, in the beginning, I was like, oh, this is so cool. All right, cool. We can make something work, but we can never make it work. We can never make it work. So now I just do way less. And I feel like even after the couple that I've got still in the pipeline with my agent, I'm, I don't want to know. I don't, unless it's Mercedes Benz. I don't <laughs> <wanna> know. <laughs> okay. We heard it here first, unless it's Mercedes Benz. But okay, so I mean, the work that you do, you know, is clearly like your purpose and, and your soul work, but also it can be tough. And we talked about how you protect your peace, but are there like really difficult moments where you're sort of like, mm, like, I don't know how I'm doing this and what sort of like propels you to keep going? Well, that's very often. I mean, not so much in the past, let's say three months or so, but the year started out with that. You know, the year mm -hmm. started out with that. I was meant to be a guest on um, a BBC radio show and the host didn't realise that her mic was on and I could see her via Zoom, um, and she, but she couldn't see me and she was just talking some real rubbish. And when I put my mic on to say, oh, hey girl, I can hear you. Instead of apologising, instead of doing all of that, she doubled down on her ignorance and then they put it out into the pub public sphere that the reason that she did it was because of something I had said um, um, a few years ago, which I'd already spoken about and already apologised um, for an address. But that was wild because every single tabloid, every single tabloid in the UK had my name in their mouth. Mm -hmm. Talking about, oh, well, the reason was because she allegedly said, duh, 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 duh. And it's like, that's not the reason. That's not the reason. I don't believe this woman. She's very wild. Don't listen to her. This is what happened. But, you know, they weren't interested because this what she was going with or what she was putting forward was way more salacious and something that, you know, people would want to grasp onto in the UK. And that point, I was really, really upset. I was really upset because none of the things that I could usually do to kind of alleviate my anger, I could do without getting arrested. So I just had to sit, I just had to sit in that space. But actually what I discovered in that space is, as somebody who um, had a childhood of sexual trauma, um, I know shame really intimately. I know shame really intimately and to avoid shame, to do, you know, you do so many things to cloak yourself um, from the world and from the shame that you felt inherently. Um, and through therapy, I've been working at, um, through ways of addressing shame and um, helping people to understand their shame and moving through that. And I've done a great amount of work and I actually think that my exam was that incident because here are all the tabloids talking crap about me and I've just got to kind of hold, uh, you know, sit tight and just wait it out. And actually I thought, no, because I have a whole last platform and, you know, in terms of my podcast that I can just go and say what my version of events was. And yep. I did that. May broke everything down, again, address the comment that she was alluding to that she knew nothing about. And would you believe it? That's the most successful episode to date. Like, and I was talking to my therapist about it and I said, like, one of the things I feared the most was like a public shaming in, you know, not just black Twitter, but I'm talking public national shaming. And yeah. they attempted it and I flipped it. And now I'm victorious. And I think that for something like that to happen, it really unlocked another kind of portal within my being that yes, sometimes things get really, really tiring, but that can't happen again. You can't do that to me again. So don't try it. Don't 
because you've all seen what happens. I will go and find out what I need to find out about you and then I'll put you on blast properly and none of these people will want to address that. They didn't suddenly want to cover it when I was bringing up what her father had done and all of those things that was in all of the newspapers and every single newspaper, you know, back in the day, suddenly nobody wanted to comment on that because they realised that, oh, this girl isn't playing. And I think that they're used to black women in the UK cowering. Lots of black women in the UK cower from the MPs to the celebrities to the everyday black women. They are scared of speaking, you know, or chatting back. That showed them that there are some black women here that are very happy to chat back. And it's, it's because, you know, yes, it's what you said about being called the angry black female. My mm. mom, you know, is, is a priest and she talks about work and she says, I am okay with bringing up the problems that we have, the problem in this, with diversity, inclusion, whatever, but I'm not going to become the problem. When you start making me the problem, mm -hmm. then I will be out because, yes, like, bringing up problems doesn't make me a problem all of a sudden. We need to solve them. Showing you the divide doesn't make me divisive. You're being so divisive talking about race. No, no, no. Race was constructed to be divisive. I'm just letting you know that I noticed the division. Duh. <laughs> Duh. Um, but yeah, there is something to be said for going through really, really, really tough times and finding the treasure there, finding the peace that you're looking for in the, in the storm. Mm -hmm. So then who would you say are the other women who have inspired you? Hmm. I would say like, there's so many, there's so many, but when I think about the UK's, uh, you know, kind of landscape, definitely Diane Abbott, because I mm -hmm. look at Diane Abbott as the first black female MP in the UK, what she must have gone through to, to get herself in that position in the first place and to have stayed there in this seat all of these years. I think she's been there for like 30 something years. And that's amazing that she could keep her position no matter what the UK papers, no matter what some other MPs who are meant to be part of her party Say about have been her. saying about her. Mm -hmm. She's she's kind of held down this thought of like, no, I'm going to do what needs to be done and everything will be well. And I really appreciate her for that. I really, really appreciate um, women like her, black women like her who have come before me, who have opened up like doors in their own way that allows for me to be able to do this. If she, if Diane Abbott had not become the first black female MP, then I, I know that in some way I wouldn't be able to speak out the way that I do. It might seem that they're not linked, but they actually are. You go out and you give permission for black women to enter spaces and that kind of permeates into every single industry. So I would say that that's the person that comes to my mind like off the top. And then I guess my friend, Rihanna Jade Parker, I owe a lot of what I do to her because even though she's like five years younger than me um, or maybe six years younger than I am, she was the first person to take me to a black feminist meeting because she was just like, oh, you know, you seem really, really interested in these things. And I go to this place and I think that you can, you know, get a lot from it. Uh, she was the one that would gift me books all the time. You know, when I was starting out and doing all of my learning and unlearning, she would gift me books. And I just... I really love that. I it, She shows to me the power of sisterhood, the power of community and the power of like holding each other sacred as we grow and we learn. Mm -hmm. um, I think she's amazing for that. Well, she sounds amazing. <laughs> and and speaking of, you know, a friend, I you did a video that really resonated with me about sort of the strong friend yeah. and, and how it's a trauma response 
And I'm wondering if you could sort of talk a bit about, you know, how you're working to not be the only strong friend. Because earlier you spoke about, you know, we tend to connect our our sort of self-worth to production. And yeah. and I know that I do that in the like being the strong friend that's like always here for advice. And my therapist is like, maybe you don't have the answer. Maybe you just like don't need to always give advice to people. And I'm like, but but they they asked. And she's like, but you can say I don't know. Yeah. Like, and and what would happen if we said no? Is there a fear that they would love us less or that we would no longer have use because we've constructed our, a lot of our personality, a lot of our sense of self based on um, being needed, being of use? Yes. Would, and, I, not, would I, I not be needed anymore? Yes. And what is it to be needed? Like, will we disappear into thin air if we're no longer needed? Right. And that really calls into a question a lot of what our ego is doing behind the scenes and then the conversation that our spirit wants us to have with our ego to, to kind of address that. Because whether people, whether I'm of use to somebody shouldn't um, mean that they love me any less. And that is really scary because I'm so used to like, no, I've got to do something. And as the eldest child and um, mm -hmm. the eldest daughter at that first, you know, as the, the daughter, I have always been useful and I've been repaid with like morsels of love, right? Yeah, and I've been so, the second mother, basically. Yes, yeah. yes. And so then suddenly you step out into the world and it's like, oh, well, I can only really connect with people who need me. So we're going to pick particular archetypes of people who need us. And then we're resentful because then they don't have space to be able to provide what we need. Oh my God. Um, whether yes. that's friends, whether that's romantic, like they don't have the space and you're, you're sitting there in therapy going, oh, well, they never asked me really how I am. And then this is happening. But you, ch you chose them for that reason. You gravitated towards them for that reason. So knowing that um, this idea of being the strong friend uh, and putting your needs to the side, it's dangerous when then you move into the realm of motherhood because then that martyrdom starts. You've put yourself to the side all your life for your family, like your mum, your your siblings, whatever, your parents. Um, and then you um, do it for, I guess, I guess maybe romantic partners, your friends, even in the workplace, you're everybody's cleaner, you're everybody's, um, you know, go-to to kind of organise the office. The then chief you have a morale child. officer, basically. Yes. Mm -hmm. And then you have a child and then that actually does need you for a certain, you know, for a certain amount of time and you don't remember where you are. And that's why women are coming to my studio now, you know, in their 50s, late 40s, sometimes late 50s, because now they're trying to find themselves again because they lost themselves in, like, being there for other people. We need to be able to save ourselves and um, other women from having to find themselves later because they got lost being the strong friend or being the strong, you know, person for everybody else. Mm -hmm. And um, it comes from just admitting that, you know, I want to be vulnerable too. I require a space where I can be vulnerable too. And that can be done in community because then there is this, I guess, narcissistic undertone of it all where it's just like, well, nobody could be the strong friend the way that I am the strong friend. I don't think that they could really <laughs> hold space for me the way that I hold space for them. They just don't, they don't know it. You know, they don't, I've been molded in this darkness. They can't do that. 
But actually they can, if you allow them the space to. And those who can't, well, you find the people that can hold space for you. So sometimes the people who you need me as the strong friend are not the ones that I go to when I need somebody. Well, that's the thing is it's not reciprocal because mm. I I wasn't, I clearly wasn't, as you said, like wasn't looking for that reciprocal relationship. So mm. there are those ones and it's like few and far between. And as we were discussing it, I was like, oh, damn. So what you're saying is, what should I, I was like, so what should I do? Stop giving advice? And then I was like, as I asked my therapist, stop, like, <laughs> and she was like, just, you know, you don't always have to know. Yeah, yeah. And that's interesting, isn't it? The not, the black, being black women and then not knowing. Because you navigate this society and they already ref think about us as black women as being unintelligent which we know is untrue mm -hmm. you know we see even in the publishing industry oh black women don't buy books they don't read they don't go to the theater they don't do this well that is a lie that is an outright lie because the most educated um women i know are black women so exactly that's a very very random statement to make so we are scared of not knowing things because we know how society already kind of um perceives us as unintelligent when actually it's, we have to lean into that. I don't know everything. And so I make a habit of saying, I don't know enough about that to speak on it. I don't know enough about that to speak on it. We could tell a few white men to do that though. <laughs> because everything, they'll be stretching their thin lips to speak when nobody asks them. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, honestly, it's, it's a game changer. And then you see the people, you see people's true colors when you say that, I don't know enough to speak about it. Well, what do you mean? Why don't you go and read about it and then speak about it on your platform? No, because I don't think that I could read quite in time to get you the information and understand it in myself and internalize it, absorb it the way that I need to in order Before to um, put I it back speak out. On it. Yeah, so no, I'm not doing it. There's somebody else that probably knows. Go to them. Aren't you asking me? So couldn't you be reading about it in this time? <laughs> That seems, oh, okay. Well, before I ask you my two closeout questions, I want to ask you, can you tell us about Sally in HR and where that came from? Yes, yeah, Sally, Sally, Sally. So I've always said, oh, she came from the podcast. But actually, even how I used her name in the podcast was really different. But my brother showed me that there was this new an emoji thing that you could do on the iPhone where you yeah. could just like make a face and whatever. And I didn't know that it was there. And so instantly I was just like, well, the, you know, the actor in me came out. I was like, so I can be anybody? And I started playing around with the features and I just started creating this um, hybrid of all the passive aggressive white women I've ever encountered when I've worked in admin, when I've worked, you know, in, in various corporations in, you know, in U the UK. I thought I'm going to create an amalgamation of all of these characters as one person and it's going to be Sally. So I just played about with it. And the first thing that came to me was to do the... Um, the skit where Sally is um, calling um, Morenike. Morenike, she's calling her and saying, oh yeah, you know, they can't give you your payslip because you keep changing your hairstyles and they can't recognize you. <sighs> <laughs> I just thought she would be a really good device for addressing the micro and macro aggressions that we face in the workplace that we do laugh about it in some ways, but actually it does need to be addressed. And I think mm -hmm. one of the best ways to do these things isn't to have these hard and fast conversations, but to laugh at the people who do it because then they feel ridiculous and they have to question why they were, you know, exhibiting that ridiculous behavior. 
Yeah, why is it so funny? Because then yeah. you there you deal with the the pronunciation of names. Instead of telling yes. me my name is difficult, just ask me like, how can I pronounce your name? Yeah, yeah. So that I yeah. don't mess it up. Your name is foreign. Don't say that. And then also the hairstyles. Like, oh, I don't know. Remember my face then. <laughs> but it's happened so many, so many people, so many black people who work in you know all of these kind of um, corporate environments or wherever. They're finding that their colleagues actually don't know them apart you know you could be on the same team and your team is tiny and there are two <sighs> black women on the same team and everybody's confused i remember i worked at a university a university for theology like a few years ago quite a few years ago now and the there was the hr woman who was black and there was myself only two of us black women in that entire university. We looked nothing alike. I was going to say, you probably not, did not look alike at all. Looked nothing alike. And she was probably at least, probably 10 years my senior. We looked nothing alike. But every time people, are you, are you both related? You must yeah. be related. Honestly, oh, no word of a lie. You look the spitting <laughs> image of each other. I wouldn't lie to ya. Wouldn't lie to ya. We look nothing alike. Oh, oh, okay. I don't even want to end on that note, but I have to ask you, what is your greatest fear for humanity? Uh, my greatest fear for humanity is that we never realize our uh, collective divinity. That's my greatest fear for us, that as amazing as we could be as um, a collective, as amazing as a world we could have, we never realize it because we're still buying into this myth that, um, you know, because you don't look like me or I'm not like you or I don't identify gender wise as you or whatever, or, you know, I love differently to how you love. That means that, you know, I have to hate you and therefore we don't, you know, we don't need to commune when actually it's, it's a communion of all of our spirits, all of our souls that will like actually help us to realise the kind of world that we deserve. None of us currently have the world that we deserve and we're just suffering in style. And for us to truly do that, there needs to be some like hard conversations and letting go of um, perceived ideologies of what it means to be successful um, and not mm -hmm. um, linking it um, wholeheartedly to how much money that you have because money's a construct in and of itself. Um, so yeah, that's my greatest fear. But then I, I, th I think that we've got a shot. I think we've got a shot. You do? Yeah. Okay, that's good to hear. So then what is your greatest hope for humanity? <laughs> that we truly realize our potential, that we start to kind of deviate from this kind of white supremacist, patriarchal, like capitalist, um, I guess, frenzy that we've been in for, for centuries now. And to understand how the land is what saves us, how nature shows us grace every single day. And I know that that's not the case in different parts of the world, but for where we are right now, Nature shows us grace every single day and every single day we absolutely boy it. We absolutely take the piss. So to be able to understand and um, honour the power of nature, um, how we look after our environment, how we look after each other, um, creating more kind of equitable ways of living. I don't understand how we can talk about people being homeless or experiencing homelessness when there's just enough for everybody. So the concept of wealth, concept of like, hoarding and the concept of like billionaires is absolutely wild when there are people that desperately need somewhere that they can be warm 
Mm-hmm. So my greatest hope is that we start to look at money as what it is, merely a construct and take um, ownership of the fact that true value is in human interaction and making sure that we're, we're giving as much to the earth as we consistently take from it. I like that. Yeah, getting away from this sort of myth of scarcity when it clearly is just not the thing in in all walks of life. Um, well, Kalechi, I want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I had a great time speaking with you. My pleasure. So keep up the videos, please, because I really enjoy them. <laughs> Will do. Will do. Will thank do. you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.